This is a CBC podcast. This is an old story from my ancestors about one of their favorite things, maple syrup. A long time ago, Nana Bojo, the trickster, went to visit his friends, the Anishinaabeg. But when he got to their camp, it was empty. No one was chopping wood or harvesting fish or picking berries. What the heck, he thought, where are all the Anishinaabeg? He found them in the woods, lying under Nanatagok, the maple trees, with their mouths wide open. Ziwagmide, syrup, was flowing out of the trees straight into their bellies. It was so easy to get that sugary deliciousness that Anishinaabeg just lay on the ground, growing fat and lazy. Mmm. Holy, said Nanabojo, this is not the way. So he went to the lake, filled up his pot, and poured water into the Nanatagok. He turned the syrup into watery sap, and it only flowed once a year. To get Ziwagmide, the Anishinaabeg had to gather endless buckets of sap and forever cook it over the fire, which takes so long. But that's how it's been done ever since, because it's so yummy. Thing is, I think Nanabojo knew sometimes the painstaking work you put into something is exactly what makes the final product taste extra sweet. I'm Duncan McHugh, and this is a hell of a story. Imagine sap dripping in a sugar bush in rural Quebec. That's where we're headed, to meet a Canadian champion who took his extraordinary skill to an international competition you've probably never heard of. Here's AC Rowe with his story. So we are in Placeville. This is a world maple syrup capital, right? There we're going to turn on the right ear, going towards uh, Saint-Pierre-Baptiste, where I was born. And you know, St. Pierre-Bas is one of the highest concentration of uh, sugar maple in the world. This is Pierre. Yeah, so my name is uh, Pierre-Alexis Soulier. I'm 35 years old. I own a maple syrup uh, distribution company. I also produce maple syrup in an artisanal way. It's late January, just last month. Pierre is on a highway in rural Quebec, tucked between Quebec City and Montreal. For generations, the economy in the area came down to two things— dairy farmers, like Pierre's ancestors, and lumber. And then we are going into the Rocky Hills, where you'll find the best sugar maple uh, sugar shack in, in the whole province and, and probably in the world. Pierre is, of course, referring to the sugar shack where he works, the one started by his wife's grandfather half a century ago, and from where he distributes his very own maple syrup line, the P.A. Soulier Selection. L-T-D. It's the old sugar shack, man. It's made in old barn uh, wood. Uh, there's a little bit of a concrete, uneven floor. And we used to boil the, the sap here for generation. But as much as we love maple syrup, it's not actually why we're here. 
Oh my god. Let's see what this baby tastes like. We're here for Pierre's other passion. Wine. 2014 Riesling. It's not that different from maple syrup, isn't it? It's like caramelization, crow extraction, you know, like burnt by the cold. You know, harvest in the middle of December, maybe January, I don't know. It's very creamy. It's very lush. It's very sweet. You're salivating. It's fresh. It's like biting in a super ripe, honey crisp apple. Or, you know, like caramelized tartatin. It's, it's beautiful. But not perfect. It's a little short on the palate, though. A true sommelier. Always analyzing. And when I say true sommelier, I mean it. In 2021, I became Bessemi of Canada. That provided me a ticket to go to the World Bessemi Competition in Paris from 7 to 12 of February 2023. And that's where we're heading. To Paris, the international capital of wine, with Pierre-Alexis Soulier, Canada's best sommelier, as he competes for the world title. But first, let's go back to the beginning. When it comes down to wine, there was always wine on the table, like the salt, the pepper, the bread, the butter, you know, it was there. The other part of it is that we always sat at the table and we had a discussion about our day. And I always realized that in my family, big decisions were taken at the table around food. You know, we were talking politics, we were talking about um, family situation, we were talking about life in general. And I always feel empowered as a young kid to see older people discussing at the table. And I found a way through wine to get involved in those situations. The first time I taste great wine, my brother was studying at the Sherbrooke University in law school. And I asked him to bring me back a bottle that I saw, and I think it was $40. And he said, I think you're mad. I think you're out of your mind. You're paying like $40 for a bottle of wine. And I said, yes, that's what I want. Can you bring it back? And he brought it back, and I opened it, and I tasted it. And it was a Fronzol uh, musket from Andreas Tertag in Alsace. And it was a game changer. You know, like, I always grew up on $10, $12 bottle of wine, like, not bad wine, but simple wine. And then suddenly it was like, ooh. There's a world of difference here, you know, like it's like uh, growing up on uh, fast food fries and ending up in Belgium having this old woman cooking fries in, in, in beef fat. You know, it's just second level. But even after that bottle, it took some time for Pierre's plan to solidify. I think I never allowed myself to become a sommelier, but I went to college and um, and uh, one day I sat with my uh, politics teacher and he said, uh, you know, Pierre, you got to go to um, to uni uh, next year. So what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to go into politics. But there's another thing that I would like maybe to try. It's called sommelier. And there's a class being given in Quebec at the uh, hospitality school. And he said to me, you know, you should do it. And if it doesn't work, well, the, the next session will be available at the uni. And for me, it was like, wow, 
Is that so simple? You can decide what you want in your life? So I went to see my grandfather and I said, hey, grandpa, I mean, you used to call him Pappy. Hey, Pappy, I, I, I found what I want to do. I'm going to become a sommelier. And he said, kid, you know, like, I want to see you work physically. I don't want you to, to live out of a passion. You know, I don't think you can make it. I think everybody was against, except my brother and my mother. Um, I think they couldn't believe um, why I would uh, choose a, a complicated and unique and highly specialized craft like that. I said to them, just watch me. Pierre has dedicated nearly two decades of his career to wine. And this calling, it's taken him all over the world. He's worked in London, Sydney, New York City, San Jose, at some of the most prestigious Michelin star restaurants on the planet. And he's gotten his hands dirty in vineyards, from the Rhone Valley in France to Napa Valley in California. I had the, a very important moment in my career where I realized that those people were farmers. They were just like my people. Instead of farming like dairy cow or farming like sugar shack, they would be farming vine. That's maybe one of the connections that a lot of people in the wine world don't have. We understand each other because we come from the land. And once I realized that, I said, okay, I ain't stopping now. In 2013, Pierre passed his wine diploma at the WSEC, the Wine and Spirit Education Trust in London, England. He did it in one year, among the first to pull it off that quickly. In 2014, he was named the best young sommelier of the world at competition in Copenhagen. In 2016, at only 28 years old, he became a master sommelier. It's a bit like the wine world's version of a grandmaster in chess. Pierre is one of the few who gained that distinction under 30. In 2017, I was best sommelier of Quebec. 2019, I was best sommelier of the Americas. In 2019, I finished ninth at the best sommelier of the world competition. That's ninth in the world. But by 2019, the demands of competing were catching up with him. Competitions meant constantly being on the road, away from home, and his wife. The next championship was a big one for Pierre, best sommelier of Canada. But he wasn't sure he was going to go. After Belgium, I, I, I told my wife that um, I wanted to retire. You know, I'm tired with, with those competitions. And um, she told me, I don't think you should. I think you should take a, a moment to reflect and... And I really think that you should get to the Canadian competition. So I said, are you sure? She said, yes, I'm sure that you need to go and I want you to go. And I said, okay. So <clears throat> I didn't do nothing. I didn't study. I didn't taste wine. And everybody was saying, oh, he's not ready. Pierre's not ready. He's going to make a fool of himself. And I just went there, and I did my business. October 2020. The top sommeliers in Canada, Pierre among them, head west to compete. So it was in uh, Penticton at uh, the southern tip of uh, Lake Okanagan in uh, BC. Here's a taste of what he had to know. Soils, types of grapes. Opening a beer, believe it or not. Tasting of wine as well. There was two wine. Decanting a wine, wine pairing. Pour a magnum of wine into 12 different types of glass. There was also a PowerPoint. About a famous estate and famous wine people that you needed to recognize. It's pretty straightforward. Huh. 
Was I confident? No. But when it was game time, I just made it. So they say, and the best homie of Canada is Pierre-Alexis Soulier. So I stand up and I go, what's next? Paris is next. And a chance at the title for the world's best sommelier. The International Association of Sommeliers founded the World's Best Sommelier Competition in 1969 to, quote, develop and promote the sommelier profession around the world. France has won six times. That's twice as many times as the next runner-up, Italy, with three. Canada has never won. Nobody from North America has. Pierre is probably the best chance Canada has had since another Quebecer, Gatineau's Véronique Rivet, placed second in Tokyo in 2013, becoming widely accepted as the world's best female sommelier. But what does it mean for the rest of us if he wins? You should ask what it meant when Jacques Villeneuve won best Formula One driver in the world. You know, like, it means pride of a nation and of a culture. It's not about me. Anything that any Canadian win is good for us. And since he's repping all of Canada, it begs a very important question. What do you pack for Paris? I bring a flannel shirt. I bring uh, steel toe uh, boots. I bring my, uh, my cowboy hat and my three-piece suits for the sommelier competition. And I'm ready. And with his suitcase full of flannel shirts and three-piece suits, he heads to Europe. It's a week later, February 1st, six days before Pierre needs to be in Paris. He's been texting me intermittently as he travels around the UK and Sweden, visiting old friends and sommelier colleagues, trying to get in the right headspace. The way he put it to me, if you want to be the best, you have to, quote, rock with the best. I get Pierre on the phone. It's 1.30 p.m. my time, meaning it's, well, I'm not actually sure what time it means for Pierre. Pierre, where are you right now? So I'm in France. Uh, I am in the Alps. I'm looking at an amazing building from the 11th century, and I'm going to, to get into a small restaurant that's got uh, up-and-coming sommeliers, so I'll see what they have to, to show me. So is that something that you like to do? You like to try to travel to the various places and test the wine personally and locally? Well, when I was young, I used to do it a lot. But the thing is, like, uh, when when you get closer to getting into the, the family chapter of your life, which I'm about to I'm trying to slow down. I think it's amongst my last round until... Uh, my wife give birth and then we'll be a little bit more quieter. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing. Pierre's wife is expecting a baby. Do you think that after your child is born, you're going to stop competing? That's a good question. I was thinking about it all day. I don't know. I'm not ready to answer that. Mm. The world is like the, the last crown that you can put on, on your journey, I guess, when it comes down to competition. Speaking of, this whole time, it has not been entirely clear to me how exactly a sommelier prepares for competition. 
The first time I asked Pierre how he trains, he said it was like Sidney Crosby getting ready for the Olympics. But this time, he's more specific. For the next 48 hours, I will be um, doing a lot of meditation and a lot of Tai Chi and a lot of visualization. I'm so curious, when you do a visualization, like what are you visualizing? When I passed the quartermaster summary exam, I, I was... Uh, Imagining myself with my niece back in Canada, eating like shepherd's pie and uh, just having a laugh. Mm -hmm. It suddenly put me into a a mindset where I felt very confident, but also very much in control of the situation. And I just I just crushed it. So uh, I think I'm visualizing myself on the podium, but. Beyond that, I'm visualizing myself back home with my family. Okay, have a, have a wonderful evening. Enjoy your dinner, and uh, I guess I'll connect with you when you're in Paris. Bye, Pierre. Bye-bye. May I ask you a question to all the candidates and delegations? How is it going? You like our city? Tuesday, February 7th, day one of the competition. 68 competitors from 65 countries and their entourages, along with press and wine aficionados, are at Le Hotel de Ville du Paris. It's Paris's city hall. It looks like Versailles, gold ornate molding. Radio Canada stringer Estelle Jamjou is there. It was a shock for a lot of the foreign delegations. People were like craning their necks to look up to the ceiling and take photos. But for me, it's just another building in Paris. <laughs> okay, all right, Paris. But people were so friendly. They were like a big family, all saying hi to each other and very welcoming. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome you and celebrate together this beautiful profession of sommelier. The competition is set over six days and three rounds. The quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals, with the winner announced at the end of the last day. The days are taken up by exams, tastings, and tests, group tours to restaurants around the city, and meetings with wine sponsors. And in the evening, a wine bar, a place for the contestants, organizers, and their guests to meet up and relax. That's where Estelle is, waiting for Pierre. So I'm the bar de sommelier and I'm still waiting for Pierre to show up. And I think he's in his room. He doesn't answer my text. So I think he probably very, very, very focused on the competition. So I brought Estelle on board to follow Pierre on site in Paris. But over the next few days, I get this series of increasingly panicked messages from her as she hunts the city, from the Hotel Duville to the wine bar to Pierre's hotel, trying to track him down. I've met a couple of people from the Canadian team, and they were pretty like, you have to understand, like, Pierre Alex is very close. Like, when he's into the competition, he will not talk to uh, even one of his friends or something like this. So, um I think is really, 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 really focused. But uh, I, I really hope that I will be able to talk to Pierre Alexis. But right now it's a bit difficult. I tried to get in touch with Pierre too, but I have even worse success than Estelle does. 
Wednesday, February 8th, quarterfinals. No word from Pierre. The morning is a written test. Reporters aren't allowed in the room. Same for the afternoon. But I find a video in the online press room. All 68 sommeliers are sitting at these long tables with black tablecloths. Glasses of wine and test papers in front of them. It's a bit like an exam being held in a banquet hall. The room is quiet, but it is not still. Every few seconds, someone picks up a glass and swirls it and holds it up to their nose, takes a deep, long breath in, thinks, puts it down, bends over, and writes. I can see Pierre. He's about midway to the back. No flannel in sight. He's wearing his dark blue three-piece suit, a red tie. Like everyone else, he has five glasses of wine in front of him. Four reds and what looks like the orange hue of a skin contact wine. Pierre, uniquely, also has a blue Powerade. Gotta stay hydrated. He looks calm, but intense. A sample of the exam was made available to journalists. Estelle got a copy. It's full of these questions like... Describe the typical aroma of each of the listed wines and name the country of origins for each of the listed grapes varieties. Please stop writing and make sure that the candidate's number is on it. It's over. I can't see from the video when Pierre leaves the room. The afternoon portion of the quarterfinals is a service test. This fake restaurant is set up in a conference room with judges sitting around a table. One by one, the contestants prove their knowledge and poise, or they try to. In the video, I see one of the sommeliers drop a cloth napkin, and I swear, I feel like I am watching someone miss the shot with 10 seconds to the buzzer. It's a short video. Pierre's not in it. But after the last sommelier goes, there's a recess as the judges deliberate. And then... The announcement for who is going on to the semifinals. The announcement that you're all waiting for. I'm scanning the crowd, looking for Pierre. The sommeliers are sitting throughout the audience with their entourages. It's like at the Oscars. The competitors are called by numbers rather than name. 66. 66. 66. Number 64. 55. After the number is announced, the finalist makes their way to the stage, and then their country is revealed. No way! I wonder how many candidates left. France makes it through. Japan, Cyprus, Latvia, Belgium. I'm going to announce the last one, number 10, 10. Yeah! Yeah! Pierre is not called. Finally, Pierre and Estelle meet up. Uh, so the outcome is that you didn't make it to the semifinal. Uh, what do you think happened? Well, you know, like I feel there's a lot of things that we cannot control in those competitions. You don't do competition to, uh, to not make it to the semis, but... Uh, I always wanted to do my best, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, very high-quality candidates that didn't make it to the semis, like best sommelier of Europe, best sommelier of Asia. The guy that finished uh, fourth last time at the best sommelier of the world, 
So those guys are probably at the moment asking themselves questions. I'm not part of those guys because I don't want to know. You know, like I always said that um, after this competition, no matter what was the result, I would retire. So for me, it's, it's over. Canada's best, retiring from competition. And I'm, I'm, I'm well with, with the situation. At the end of the day, life will continue just like it was happening before the competition. Wine is not a singular thing. There's so many other things in life. You gotta live with it, you gotta accept it, and you gotta move on. In Canada, that's how we, we behave. And that's the values I believe in. Hard work, fairness, love, care, and wishing the best. And, and that's why today I'm wishing the best to the best sommelier of the world to become. You know, like, it's not easy. For me, it, it is what it is. I got beaten. That's it. End of the story, you know. On Sunday, February 12th, on a stage in front of 5,000 spectators. The winner, Raymond Thompson's. Raymond Thompson's of Latvia was named the best sommelier in the world. Pierre went to visit friends in the Alps to network for Le Clan, the restaurant in Quebec City, where he's the head sommelier, and to eat delicious meals with good friends and drink a little wine. He's now back home in Canada. Like he said, this is not the outcome he wanted. However, it's not the end of the story. Not really. Pierre and his wife, their baby is due in a few months. Soon, it will be time to harvest the sugar bush. Late March, maybe early April. Back before the competition, before Paris, there was this thing that Pierre said when he was standing by the sugar shack in his hometown. He was in the snow, looking out onto a lake at these ducks, just toughing it out on this cold January day. You know, like, those ducks are amazing because they hang out together all winter long. You know, like, they are the toughest, badass ducks you can find because they stay on a frozen lake. All the weak one, they went down south. But they stick together, you know, like the family is there and they make a living out of nothing. They are the best. But, you know, like when we came to Tepia Basil, I'll show you the church, you know, where I got baptized and my wife got baptized and we got married there. And, you know, like we will be buried here, you know, like this is where we're from, man. For me, it's important, you know, I could have lived in California, lived the Californian dream. I had a good time there, but it's nothing like home, man. It's nothing like home. That documentary from AC Rowe of CBC's Audio Doc Unit with reporting from Craig Dessen and Estelle Njomju. And I never would have predicted that Somaliers have such boisterously loud cellies after a big win. Number 64. And that's it. 
for this week's Hell of a Story. The show is produced by Tanera McLean, Julia Poggle, and me. We're part of the CBC Audio Doc Unit. And I got some inspiration for the Nanabojo story from Leanne Pettisamosak Simpson's great book, Dancing on Our Turtle's Back. And here's that part where I ask you to help us out by hitting subscribe or saving to your favorites or telling a friend about us if you like what you're hearing on Hell of a Story. We'd really appreciate it. I'm Duncan McHugh, Jimmy Gwitch. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.